Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and today I'm joined by Gina McCarthy. She has recently been the White House National Climate Advisor under President Joe Biden. In the Obama administration, she was U.S. EPA Administrator. She has a long track record. She's considered a climate heavyweight. I'm delighted to have her on the show today. Hi, Gina. How are you doing today? I'm well, Ted. How about yourself? I'm doing great. It's so nice to meet you. Where where are you where are you sitting physically right now as we speak? I am sitting in my home in Jamaica Plain, in the which is a an area of the great city of Boston in Massachusetts. It's a nice area. It's a nice area too. And I know you stepped down as the White House, the National Climate um, Advisor, in September. And I mm-hmm. thought I was going to ask you about your, uh, your, 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 your vacations and the time off that you're taking, but it looks to me that you're busier than ever. I, you're at Tufts doing a fellowship. You're, you're working for some capital companies. You're working with Bloomberg. Life is busier than ever? Yeah, if we wanted to talk about this, we could talk about it for a really long time. But the simple fact is that, you know, I got hooked on looking at the issue of climate change. And I just see it as sort of an existential challenge. And when you have, you know, four little grandchildren, four and under, and one more on the way, uh, I had a hard time thinking it was time to put my pen aside and say, I'm done. You know, you just can't do it. It's a, it's to me a lifetime commitment. And it's an honor to have been able to to do the work that I did in government, but uh, it doesn't mean that I'm going to keep my mouth shut when I'm a private citizen. Uh, that, yeah. that my, as my husband will attest, that just never happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad for that. And what? How many years were you in Washington? I, I'm thinking four, five, six years of of. Uh... Oh no, qu- quite a bit longer than that. I I think I first uh, ended up in Washington maybe in 2008 maybe oh. early 2009. Uh, then I worked for, you know, almost eight years with, with President Obama. Then I had a, a break. Yeah. Um, and then I came back with another year and a half to almost two years with President Biden. Yeah, you've really paid your dues. <laughs> I, I have, but, uh, you know, I, I just don't, I really don't look at it that way. I, you yeah. know, it was just really quite a, a startling opportunity for me. You know, I, I had the, I had some really good colleagues who, who uh, uh, worked with me. Uh, the team at EPA was just unimaginably smart and creative and dedicated. And I found the craziness of the White House to be as crazy as one would think, but it's mostly crazy because it's just really busy and yeah. there's big issues to tackle. And you always have, you feel like you have such a limited amount of time to yeah. make a difference. And I don't know, you, you and I, Ted, we're, you know, we, we came from the same cloth. We're both sort of dedicated to do things and, and to make change in the world. And that was never going to change no matter what I did for a living. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's back all the way up just for the sake of our audience here. You're, you're, you're Boston based through and through, right? I mean, you're in Jamaica now. You were born in Boston, right? You could probably tell that from, from talking. <laughs> you're famous for your accent. Yes. <laughs> famous or infamous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what were your early interests? I mean, you, did you have any inclination when you were a kid that you were going to have an environmental career? 
<laughs> I don't I don't know honestly. I don't I, I'm not much of a big planner about those things. If I see an opportunity, I, I take it. You know, and in my work career, it's really been, you know, if you do something for five more than five years, you're probably not going to be as exciting as you once were five years ago. So I like to do new things. And and so I've always really looked for opportunities. But, you know, if you were, you know, if you remember, you know, back when I was brought up, you know, it was 69 years ago. You know, and this was at a point in time where the environment was, you know, and the pollution was right in front of your face. Yeah. You know, in my world then, we didn't have big screen TV. You know, we had little teeny bonanza, you know, on a little black and white television set. And, you you know, every morning you got kicked out your door and said, go play. And you did. And so I... I spent my, you know, my really formative years just having a great time playing outside. Yeah. You know, we had the Blue Hills down the street, which I still go to mm-hmm. as much as humanly possible, which is just a a beautiful uh, natural resource area within the boundaries of the city of Boston. And we went there to play, to yeah. turn rocks over and see what you saw, to look at the you know, amazing things that you could find. And, and to, so in nature was in my blood at that point, being outside was all I cared about. And so it was sort of inevitable that the challenges that you're seeing with the pollution around would be something that attracted my attention. Yeah. But honestly, I didn't land squealy in this arena to focus on for a career until I was sort of 26. Yeah. You know, that's when I kind of started my first real job as the board of health agent in the town of Canton. And it was then that all of the sort of work that I had done in college when I was at UMass and I studied and focused on anthropology, I did it originally because it was the only class I never took in high school. They never offered it. So I went to do something new and I fell in love with it. It was a people issue. You know, it was it was about human beings. And I translated that into my next venture at Tufts, which was really all about looking at at, uh, environment and housing and engineering issues and infrastructure and sort of it must together. And I ended up really falling in love with uh, the intersect between environment and health and pollution and the challenges that that we could tackle together to actually make people's lives better dealing with some of these issues and and I just I I just have had just a wonderful time to me always focusing on what's the benefits to human beings and how do we make our lives better yeah. um, by focusing on these environmental challenges not as a sacrifice but as just a gigantic opportunity it really is. Now, Mitt Romney became governor of Massachusetts. Did he bring you into his administration? I know he brought in Doug Foy. You know, I had been, you know, I had worked my way. I spent about, uh, I don't really know, maybe five years at the local level um, working on issues in, in the town of Canton. And I just got to be probably more annoying to the state government than anything that they finally (laughs) said, okay, you're passing all these bylaws and beating us to the punch on so many of these things come and work at the Commonwealth. So I took a job at the Commonwealth. I began as an effort to 
look at how we would shift the idea of um, constructing more hazardous waste facilities into toxic use reduction. So I started running that program in the environmental office. Um, we called it the Executive Office of Environmental Affairs that reported directly to the White House about how you would sort of move forward on these environmental challenges. I ended up going all the way up to um, Assistant Secretary uh, in in that agency, which was about, you know, fisheries and parks and in, environmental pollution. I mean, it ran the gamut. And and so uh, what happened was um, I was in the, the uh, secretary of the Envi the assistant secretary of the environment. And there was an election when Mitt Romney came in. And the question then was, how quickly should I pack my bags? It was coming because while I had worked for only one Democrat in all that time, I actually worked for four other Republicans, but it was seen that it would be something different. Yeah. You know, it would likely be the end of the New England kind of Democrats and Republicans and the start of something different. Only that never happened. <laughs> you know, as you know, Doug Foy was a, a great advocate yep. um, in in uh, in the in Massachusetts for environmental causes. You know, and and he still was advocating and established a relationship with uh, Mitt Romney, where they both agreed that they had to work really closely to look at crafting a new office of Commonwealth Development. Um, that I that I was then asked to help and support by Doug. Mm. And it was basically an effort to work directly with Doug and with the governor to look at how to sort of coordinate decision-making. So we were actually advancing community development. And that looked at how do we make the environmental agency play good with all the other agencies? And how do we make this work for the benefit of the Commonwealth? And it was a blast. Really? You know, I loved every moment of it. But then something really weird happened, Ted. And, <laughs> and what really weird happened was in Connecticut, the governor there was found to be uh, doing something illegal and was actually put in jail, which meant that the lieutenant governor stood, uh, stood in. Her name was uh, Governor Jody Rell. And she put out this call for people who who wanted to be new cabinet members because she got rid of all the existing cabinet. <laughs> and I ended up just applying for that, thinking, well, that'd be cool. Because in Massachusetts, there tends to be a, a big P political person in that job. And for once, this was about who's on the ground, knows what they're yeah. doing. I interviewed yeah. for it and I got it. Left Doug and, and his team behind, having done work for a couple of years. Hopefully they were on solid footing, as I know they would be. Yeah. And then I moved over to Connecticut and took that position, which was which was really running the, the entire gamut uh, of the work, including what was then really heavy, heavy commitment to look at the issue of climate change. Work that we started in, in Massachusetts. But I think we really uh, formed a, a great al alliance and allegiance between New England states and the Mid-Atlantic to really pull together some big climate um, uh, successes, including um, the Regional Greenhouse yeah. Gas Initiative. Yeah, so, so it was a fun opportunity for me and a great time. And then, and then you got tapped to go to Washington. 
I did. And and really the reason why I, I got this call um, from Lisa Jackson, she was then um, running the EPA transition team for President Obama. She had been in, in uh, working um, as the um, the secretary of the EPA or the commissioner of the EPA, uh, Department of Environmental Protection, I think they called it, in New Jersey. And we had worked together on the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. We had worked together to figure out how to do some work on our, our pollution and Superfund programs together. And so I, I thankfully was one of the first people she called to say, hey, I'm going to be the next EPA administrator. And I'm like, yippee. And she said, hey, you want to play? And I'm like, are you kidding me? She said, if you wanted to come, what would you want to do? I said, there's only one job. And it was basically to to be the assistant um, secretary um, doing the Office of Air and Radiation. Because to me, I really had my, my headset by then on the issues of climate, on the issues of its connection with air pollution and health. And that was what I really wanted to focus on, even though I totally enjoyed my time in Connecticut. It was, believe it or not, probably the most fun job I ever had. The Connecticut experience. Um, Yeah, well, Connecticut was is a beautiful state. If you only go down 95 to go through it, you miss one of the most beautiful (laughs) states in the entire country. And it has these beautiful lands. And I did a lot of work on a program called No Child Left Inside, which was how we coined our opportunity to really open up the parks to families again and get people outside and really connecting with the natural world, which is what I did with a kid. And I thought it was what led to the rest of my life shaping the way it did. And I wanted others to have that opportunity. So I I ended up, uh, you know, reluctantly giving that up um, and moving, but excited hugely about the opportunity to work in, in, in President Obama's administration and Felicia Jackson at EPA. She's just always been and will always be such a great friend and colleague. That's great. And I, I, you know, sort of fast forward, I mean, you, you had eight years of, you called it playing, but hard work, no doubt, and bringing together different agencies and building consensus. And you passed lots of environmental legislation. Um, what was it like when Trump came in and just started dismantling it? How can you, ha- how does that feel? It's got to be just a, a gut punch for everybody that put all that effort and energy into it. Well, you know, we- we, uh, you know, struggled um, when I was at EPA to get movement on climate change because it just wasn't embedded into the system. Yeah. You know, we 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 figured out that it was essentially a form of air pollution. It was carbon dioxide, and we could regulate that. And we moved forward with regulation, sort of at the almost at the tail end of the Obama administration. So we were excited about that, but knew it was just an uphill battle and challenging. Yeah. But, you know, we were excited about what would come next until it did. <laughs> you know, what came next was was President Trump and, and watching the sort of dismantling of the leadership at EPA hard. was pretty heartbreaking and the work that we had done. But I have to tell you, Ted, I am just... I am just an optimist and I won't give it up. 
Yeah. Because to me, people only change and and get behind these things that that allow you to change and make their lives better if you remain positive and show them the future that you're trying to deliver. And and I always believe that the work that I did was bettering people. And I worked really hard to make sure that didn't mean that we were going to kill the economy or dismantle communities. And I worked hard at that to make that right balance and still follow the law and what the science said. And so I, I remained sort of vocal in the things I didn't like, not about you know criticizing EPA, but its leadership for sure. Um, and the president, for sure, in the way that he was dismantling what I thought were fundamental protections for human beings and our world. Um, but I lived through it. You know, I, I, I got a great job working at Harvard um, with your daughter, who is yeah. terrific, and others at the, you know, we started up the Center for uh, Climate Change um, yeah. and Health. Uh, we called it Sea Change, the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at Harvard. And, and it gave me a platform where I could work with students and still have some ability to move forward. That's when I started working with folks in the private sector to try to get more investment. And that's when I got the excited call, you know, not too long after that, about working at NRDC as the president and CEO there, which I did for about a year. But but it didn't last long when I got the call from President Biden um, back in, in uh, you know, at a time when I was excited to be at NRDC. I also was doing some work for the administration on looking at climate and how to develop the strategies for the president. So I got the call that president, I'm sorry, I should say the president-elect, and yep. I got the call from President Biden asking if I join the administration. You know, you need to be cloned, I think. I think that's what I know. Harvard was terribly upset when you, you, you moved on, uh, supported you. And then NRD, I'm sh NRDC, I'm sure, had the same reaction there. You got oh, to. Oh, I felt terrible leaving NRDC. <laughs> I mean, and, and Harvard, I loved it, but it was still, you know, there and standing. And NRDC was something I'd never done before. It was an NGO when I had already, always been in government. So for me, it was eye-opening and exciting. And I was just getting started. And I'm like, oh. And when I looked at my husband and said, so how much, and he asked me, so how much money will you make at this new jump back to the White House? I lied, um, but eventually he <laughs> found the truth. Um, and so it was, in many ways, it was a, a big leap for me. Um, yeah. But one I just couldn't not well, no. take. Well, now, what was, what, what, this was the first time that we had a national climate advisor. So what comes with that role? Well, it's, it's, it's one that, you know, I, uh, I took it knowing that it was very different. It came with the creation of a, a climate office in the White House. You know, President Biden absolutely committed to climate, which is why I took that job. Yeah. His reframing of it, too, was extremely important. You know, he did what I was trying to do by connecting it with health. He made it a people issue. You know, he was looking at a time when we just leaving COVID. We have a, a, a leg in our economy. We had people feeling probably worse than they felt yeah. personally, being stuck in the house and losing jobs. So he reframed climate as a way of driving economic growth again, as a way of growing 
clean yeah. energy jobs. He he did it as a way to save families money. So his reframing was like, to me, a shot in the arm. So he created this policy office that wasn't just about sitting on its own and thinking big thoughts. It was about a whole of government approach where we were being asked to bring every agency within the federal government to the table at the highest levels working with commissioners, working with secretaries to factor in climate into every decision they made. That's what made it enticing, but also scary. So we had this small team of about, I don't know, 10 or 12 really exciting, capable human beings, many of them, if not most, way younger than I had been 30 years ago, right? And they were filled with information and excitement. But the tricky part was, could you make this whole government approach really work? Would anybody listen? Would it be an ancillary thing that yeah. they had to worry about? And to make sure that wasn't true, the president did meetings with us. And we did meetings every couple of months with my team and every one of the key administration members that that really focused on what were they doing? What excitement could they bring? How did they factor this into decision making? How do we look at both how we start weaning off of fossil fuels and more, even more importantly at that point and exciting was how do we invest in clean energy so that it is no longer the choice. It is no longer the one that's going to capture our minds and thoughts and pocketbooks. And he brought together the private sector in a way was that was exciting. He brought in the labor community. The first thing we delivered was a commitment to electric vehicles. That's because GM committed to it, Ford committed to it. And it went on and on and on because the the uh, the, the labor community committed to it first. They said that they were going to buy into this framing because it would be more jobs, more investment in manufacturing in our country that we needed, that it would help our communities. And damn, they were right. I'm yeah. sorry. But it worked hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. You know, and we are now in a different place than we were then, Ted. This yeah. we that's why we got the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act moving forward, because it was that investment. It's blocked innovation. It's brought in billions of dollars in private sector in, in investment, in innovation, in new technologies. It's just a, a game changer that that really ended up being not just about the U.S., but game changing across the world, because you saw the EU saying, what the heck, we're going to do one of these. You saw Great Britain doing the same thing. And I think it's really sparked a, a new momentum to look not just at the developed world, but at the developing world and how we really start investing in those countries that really didn't have a hand in messing up our climate, that really are the ones that actually need the investment the most. So it's been exciting to watch that that flow and yeah. that, that building of momentum. And hopefully having that continue now, if we can do that for the next 10 years, we're going to beat this climate crisis. And as an optimist, I'm not questioning whether we have the ability to do that or whether we're going to succeed because we have to. There is yeah. no There's choice. No question. It was interesting that you said about the reframing and how President Biden reframed the issue and, and the whole notion of 
you know, that, that clean energy is not something that needs to be subsidized, but needs to be invested in and that it will have, that those investments will leverage great returns. And I was interested that Arnold Schwarzenegger just in the past month, I think, came out saying we should stop calling climate change climate change. We should just call it pollution. He said, nobody gives an S about climate change. It's too soft. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like it's okay. Things are changing. That's okay. And he said pollution. And, and I thought, well, I, I didn't necessarily agree with that. But now just recently, we have new readings in terms of parts per million uh, coming in from Hawaii or this in May. We have the highest parts per million in what, since uh, maybe in 3 million years, uh, we have the highest levels of CO2. So CO2 is still growing. I'm an internal optimist. I'm with you. There, we All the solutions are right in front of us. It's just, can we scale up? Can we get people on board and yeah. scale up faster? What's your reaction to that? Uh, Ted, you know, that's the reason why, you know, Sea Change, the Climate, Health, and the Global Environment Center was created for the same communication challenge. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, and I, I, I really appreciate Governor Schwarzenegger and, and all of his efforts to really push this along. And and I agree that, that pollution that's impacting health is one of the biggest drivers to make yeah. this change. And we have to keep pushing that. And I'm excited to have always been part of that effort. And it continues to be one of the biggest drivers for me. But we but but you know, we have to be not about how do we fix the planet. We do have to be how does that relate to human beings and protect us. I think there's great benefit in shifting to the optimistic framing of, of action on climate is the biggest opportunity of our life. It's not just to protect our kids' future, but it's to deliver a healthy, safe, and, and resilient planet for us to live on even today. You know, this is just something that we're, to me, we're making a positive statement actually detracts nobody. Uh, it, it attracts everybody. You know, it really will allow us to get the momentum we need, which is really quite significant. It at times looks like it's impossible to achieve. And that's the moment when all of us have to stand up and say, hey, that's just not good enough. You know, my parents booted me in the butt when I said I was too tired to do my homework. No, you're not. If you would, if you didn't, if you want to cut playing for half an hour, come in and get the job done. So this is not really about, you know, uh, about sacrifice. This is about working together and capturing the opportunities of the moment. And the the really interesting thing about all this investment coming in is it sends a clear signal that our country is not just committed, but we're on the right track. You know, if we can attract private sector investment without demanding it and protect human health by demanding it, we've got such a winning combination. And I, and I, I don't have any doubt that we're going to succeed. The question is how fast can we move forward? Just how can we accelerate this momentum? And how do we, you know, prevent folks that, you know, uh, think that fossil fuels has to be the future and is willing to do everything humanly possible to say that? How do we prevent them yeah. from taking over this narrative? 
because, and we only do that by pro proving to people in every single community, in every single person, that they're seeing benefits today that are remarkable for them and going to help them with their family. And by the way, make the world a safer place because climate change in the end is one of the most destabilizing yeah. you know, uh, impacts that we have right now. So it's important for us to move forward. I agree. I totally agree. Boy, what, what a great conversation. I thank you for that. I want to ask you one final question. Yeah. I always ask this, but how do you keep balance in your life? I, I know you've got a dog. I know you have four grandchildren, a husband. You take walks. What else? What else would you say? How would you, how do you, you know, it's the question is how, how do really effective people maintain their balance? I think by turning off once in a while and, and taking a deep breath. You know, one of the things I learned is that, you know, when you're in government, there's always going to be politics. There's big P and there's little P politics. But in the end, you you have to take your wins and not let your losses take you down. You know what I mean? There's yeah. always going to be things you win at and you should celebrate, but there's always going to be losses as well. And you have to recognize that human beings are human beings. I spend every waking moment of my time, you know, now, you know, working as hard as I can for a while, but then playing with my grandchildren, hanging out with my husband, going to restaurants and having some good food to eat, yeah. relaxing with family and friends. And you need to have that balance in your life. You know, yeah. nothing should ever tell you that your failure or your inability to move something at work is is, is something you're going to take home with you. It has to be something you leave at the office and then sit back and realize the blessings that you have and and relish them every moment you have. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.